I am giving a message this week that I have, in a sense, preached 13 times before. And in another sense, I have preached a thousand times before here at this church. Essentially, it's this, that it's not about you. It's not about us. That this whole thing is all about Christ. Now, if I've done that 13 times, why do it a 14th time? And the answer to that is the same reason that lovers will say over and over again in a lifetime, uh, I love you. They say that because there are some things that are so essential, so core, that they have to be repeated. And in the repetition of them, it keeps that core thing at the center where it needs to be. And there is nothing that is more core and more central and more essential to everything. Not, you know, the, living the Christian life for sure, but all of life. Then the centrality, the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Scripture summarizes it this way, Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. That word there is translated preeminent, that he might be first, have first place, that he might have the supremacy, so that in everything he might have it all. And this is our 14th annual weekend of services celebrating the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In a way, we celebrate this every weekend, but like the I love you example, it is good for us to be reminded over and over and over again about what the whole thing is all about, or should I say who the whole thing is all about. And we have crystallized this majestic statement about the centrality of Christ into a little phrase that is repeated over and over here at our church throughout the year. And I pray is until Jesus comes. It's all about him. Okay, It's all about him. And since we are in the midst of a series on love from 1 Corinthians 13, I thought this year that we would focus on the supremacy of Christ in his love for us. The supremacy of Christ in his love for us. Our working definition of agape love is self-giving for the good and joy of another. And if you skipped ahead in chapter 13 to the very last thing that is said about love... In the, in the description, it is this, that love never ends. Verse 8, love never ends. This is also translated, love never fails. Love never gives up. Love never falls down. And some of us here, probably right now, are thinking to themselves, well, uh, I, I don't know so much about that. I can't relate to that. Because most of the loves, if not all of the loves in my life, have fallen down. 
They have failed me. Love has been so disappointing. Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about my uh, dating relationships. Let me tell you about my marriage. Let me tell you about my family. Let me tell you about my friends. My whole life is one sad story of love failing me. And I would have to believe that in this room today there are many scars. Many scars that we bear of love that failed. Love that ended. Love that was withdrawn. And so the biblical proposition that there is a kind of love that never gives up, that never fails, that 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 never falls down would sound to us like a fantasy. I mean, who could actually love somebody like me in that way? I haven't known anybody to love me that way. Who could do it? There is one. There is one. And our text for this message is from Romans chapter 8. Many people would consider Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. I remember the pastor of the church that I grew up uh, in saying that if he was uh, deserted on a remote desert island and he could only have one chapter in the Bible, he would want Romans 8. It's a kind of chapter that covers the big, it's like a Himalayas kind of chapter, you know, the big peaks of truth and doctrine including gospel and salvation and life in the spirit and then what we're talking about today, God's sustaining love for us. It begins to move to its crescendo beginning in verse 31 by asking a series of questions. And the answer to each one of these questions is the same. So he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer class is what? right there. Do it again. No one. He says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is, who will condemn us? And then in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it is this last question that is our focus this morning. And here is the most assuring the most wonderful portion in the most wonderful chapter in all of the Bible, beginning in verse 35, with this question, Paul asked, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, we need to understand right away what we're talking about when we talk about the love of Christ, because there would really be two ways to look at it. Is this talking about uh, the love of Christ that I have for him? Or is this the love of Christ that he has for me? Well, we should be glad that it is God's love, it is Christ's love for us. And it has to be that. And the reason that it has to be that is that all of us should know ourselves too well. I am all too easily separated from my love for Christ. I can wake up in the morning in a spiritual funk and I'd just be all like, ah, or if my if I'm not feeling very well, oh, I, oh, I don't, oh. or if I've got some relationship problem, oh, and I'm all like, oh, I don't, God, I don't know if I love my love. My love for Christ is so wishy-washy. Like in any given day, it can go up, it can go down. I've got good things that happen, yeah, and then bad things. No, and I just flow up and down like a roller coaster. 
I'm wishy-washy. And so we looked then at this majestic description of this unending, invincible, inseparable love. And there's no way that it's talking about us. Do you agree? No way. It can only be talking about Christ's love for us. And the start and finish line in this passage is the inseparability of Christ's love from his people. Begins with the question, who shall separate? You see that word? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? His love never ends. It cannot be separated. I thought of this as it relates to these uh, Chilean miners. Have you heard about these guys? Maybe you have. Uh, this week there was a collapse in the mine down in Chile and, and these 33 men rushed to this like safe place where they could go and, and uh, this room is 540 square feet. 33 men. And they're going to be there, they're saying right now, until Christmas. Can you imagine that? The only, the only thing they have, they got like a hole about this big that they can stuff food and water and things down to them. And these guys are going to be down there until Christmas. And those are some guys that are going to have stories to tell when they come up, don't you think? I mean, there's so much you, you know, just thinking about that. Uh, and so I got thinking about separation because they're, they're dealing right now with being separated from their loved ones. The men are down here. Their families are up on the, on the surface. So they're separated, agonizing about it, a kind of geographical separation. But that's not what this is talking about here. This is describing a relational separation of love, which if we were honest again, we'd have to say this is our greatest fear. To have a relationship with somebody that is a love relationship and then for that relationship to be separated for it to be ended would be for us the most horrible of experiences. I mean, what words are more painful in the human experience than this? I don't love you anymore. I used to love you, but I don't now. This is horrible. Withdrawn love. I have a a friend who... His family is going through all of the pain of this kind of withdrawn love. His sister and his uh, parents have basically been at war for, I don't know, five or ten years. And they don't talk. They can't, even if they're in the same room together, they will not acknowledge the other person's presence. I mean, it has been, the stories that I hear, it's been horrible. And, and his family is just being racked and devastated by a kind of love that once was there, but now has been withdrawn. Perhaps some of you can relate to that. Withdrawn love is very painful. And that's why I think we all have a kind of separation anxiety. We're all, we're all afraid that the things that we find, the love relationships that we find meaning in will somehow end. And we recognize that in the human experience that there is this thing called death that is coming, which will be for us a kind of separation from family and spouses and children and all the rest. But the thing that we hate to think about the most is to hear, I don't love you anymore. And yet, 
the Bible speaks into that by saying, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Is, is there anything that can keep him from loving us? And it says here, the stunning truth, that divine love, listen, never ends. Never. Let that just sit. Never ends. It cannot. Because God is unchangeable. If he says that he loves you, he loves you, and there ain't nothing that can change that. This is the the, the doctrine word is the immutability of God. He is unchanging. There are no circumstances that can somehow maneuver or manipulate him. He is God. His love cannot change. Which is wonderful, is it not? Okay. But, this is not necessarily totally reassuring. Because my mom will probably always love me. But I don't necessarily know that I'm always going to have the experience of my mother's love. There is, again, there's geographical separation, right? So I'm, like, I'm five, six hours from the closest family member. So my mom loves me, but she's, like, way out in Iowa, okay? So I can get in a car and drive, and I can call her, and she can email me, and we can send pictures back and forth. But how do I know that I'm always going to experience the love of my, of my mother What I really need is not merely love that cannot change, but love from which I cannot be separated. I need inseparable love. And this is what Paul addresses here now with two lists. Two lists. The first list is seven circumstances in which we would be likely to think that God may not love us or that Christ may not love us. And the second is... Ten apparent threats to God's ability to love us. And these are essentially answering two questions. Is there anywhere that Christ will no longer love me? And is there anything that can keep him from loving me? And so let's take a look at it. Now beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, that doesn't sound so good, does it? What is this talking about? And you see here we have, when I am in blank, does Christ still love me? And he just runs through a list of human experiences, beginning, first of all, with tribulation. Tribulation, another, it's a fancy word for trouble. When I am in trouble, does Christ still love me? And the reason that he begins, I think, with trouble is this is the most common time for us to think, when I'm in trouble, does Christ still love me? Is God still for me or not? Tribulation. Maybe you're there today. I think what happens so often for us is that when circumstances are good, we assume that God's favor is upon us. So when the job is great and secure and when the kids are all obedient and when my marriage is doing well and when I'm getting kind of some nice little kudos here some other place in my life, there's a sense that all is well and that must mean that I, God is well with me. But then when tribulation comes into our life, we can easily think the opposite. 
wait a second, I thought that he loved me. Why am I the one that has a certain health problem? And why am I the one who's dealing with a difficult spouse? And why are my children not turning out perfect? And why am I getting uh, nailed by, by uh, coworkers or whoever it is is just hammering? Whatever it is, we can in those moments think, well, God must not love me. Or maybe he can't love me. Look at what a mess my life is. And what happens, I think, is that our love, our view of Christ's love is so very circumstantial. Because our human love is very circumstantial. And we interpret Christ through the similar experience that we have in our own life. He moves on to distress. Tribulation is outward trouble. Distress is inward trouble. This is when you're laying in bed at night and there are so many burdens on your heart that you cannot sleep. You're filled with anxiety. You've got anguish about something in your life. There's trouble inside. Can Christ still love me? Will he want to love me less because of this? He goes on to persecution. And this was a very common reality in the first century. It's a very common reality in other places of the world today. He adds danger and sword in the list as well. Our moments of physical danger or even martyrdom are those times when Christ may withdraw his love from us or not. Famine and nakedness refer to times of great need. Famine is the absence of food. Nakedness is the absence of clothing and shelter. Listen, are you more assured of God's love when you uh, have a job, when you're easily making that mortgage payment, when you got money to buy uh, clothes for the kids... Or is there some other kind of sense of the love of God when you can't do those things? When there's an absence of food and there is an absence of shelter. Times of want can make us wonder, does God love me or doesn't he? And so we look at this list and and you know what the theme of this list is? Bad. Any good things in there? Any things in there where you're going, I I want more of that in my life? I don't think so. They're all bad. It's all bad. Why? Because those are the times that we wonder, does Christ still love me? Is he he maybe going to withdraw his love from me? Is Christ's love circumstantial so that when things are good in my life, he loves me? When things are messy, he doesn't. Are we like the lover, uh, the forlorn lover with the daisy, wondering, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Friends, he doesn't love us because we are lovable. He doesn't love us because of our circumstances, whether that be outward or inward. We sometimes can be like I was a few years ago. I had a very small apartment, and um, it's kind of a longer story. I'm not going to get into, but there was a cleaning lady who would come and clean the larger building within which my apartment existed. <laughs> oh, that was not said well. Um, anyway, so this cleaning lady, I, 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 well, she comes a couple times a month. I might as well have her clean my apartment as well which I had never had a cleaning lady before, and I haven't had a cleaning lady since, but for the short period of time, I had this cleaning lady. So, strange thing happened, I found, on the days that the cleaning lady was coming over. I would wake up in the morning, and I'd be like, the cleaning lady's coming over. 
I got to straighten this place up. I got to get these dishes taken care of and I need to furniture's a mess and that towels, I got to get those put away. Why? Because the cleaning lady is coming over. I need to clean up for the cleaning lady. Many of us, I think, come at our relationship with God that way, and we assume that in order for uh, me to have a relationship with God, i got to clean myself up, and not realizing that God is the cleaning lady who cleans us up. Please note, what is absent from the list is who is the cause of these things? Who is the cause of these things? What if I am in trouble because of my own foolishness? Will Christ still love me? What if I am having inward anguish because of my own fears and insecurities? Will Christ still love me? What if, what if I am in want because of stupid decisions that I have made in my life? For Christ to love me, do I need to straighten up my life, to to, to clean up my apartment, to wash my feelings and arrange the furniture. Friends, listen, here is the love of God, and this is what we just want to stand in amazement at today. Here is the love of God. Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that's saying? Is listen, he didn't love you because you were lovable. He didn't love you because you cleaned yourself up. He loved you when your apartment was nasty. It was horrible. And yet he loved you not a little. He gave his life for you. And if he didn't love you circumstantially then, he's not loving you based on circumstances now. No matter what they are and who the cause is, he loves us and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What a glory there is in that. To recognize this. And if you're here today and you're like, I'm checking out religion, I'm checking out Christianity. i got to get myself all cleaned up so I can hang out with these Christians. No, 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 no. You must do what every Christian has had to do, and that is to acknowledge the sin. Not, not cover it up. Acknowledge the sin and come humbly to Christ who gave his life, dying for that sin. And now Christ embraces us when we turn to him in faith and he loves us in spite of our sin which is good news for sinners now the self-righteous don't get too excited about that but sinners love it any sinners here today amen Now, Paul answers his question, his own question, in verse 37. In what I would probably call the greatest verse in the coolest section of the greatest chapter in the whole Bible is verse 37. No, in all these things, vis-a-vis the list we just went through, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who 
loved us. Let me say that again. No is the answer to the question. We, in all these things, we are more, get that? More than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, this is such a cool Greek word here for more than conquerors. Sports fans, you're going to love this. And as you know, I have to have at least one sports illustration in every sermon. So here you go. Here's the one. Uh, sports fans are going to love this because of this, this particular Greek word. It is the same word that when the Nike company was trying to decide what they were going to name their company, somehow they came across this Greek word, Nike. And they said, let's name our company Nike. And so they named it Nike. Now here's why they named it Nike. Because the word, it literally means this, victor or victory. Greek word. Now in this text, there is a little added prefix to it. And it's this, hyper. Most of us probably can guess what that means. Hyper. So it's hyper Nike. Hyper Nike. And to help you see it, there we go. Because <laughs> I want you to get this. And what this means is, is that in all these things, we are not merely winners. We're not, we don't just kind of win. We dominate. We crush. We overcome to the max. Hyper Nike. Let me illustrate it this way. In 1999, in the Super Bowl, the St. Louis Rams played the Tennessee Titans. And Kurt Warner was the uh, quarterback of the St. Louis Rams, who just as a side note, played in Cedar Falls, Iowa, his college degree or college uh, career, which is a wonderful city. And I went to school with his wife. But anyway, I just add that. Um, she married down. Anyway, uh, <laughs> oh, that better not go on the radio. So anyway, they played in the Super Bowl, and many of you remember this particular Super Bowl because it was very, very close. And on the last play of the game, the Tennessee Titan receiver was reaching for the end zone, but he didn't quite get there, missed it by like two or three yards, and so then the Rams won the Super Bowl and all the hoopla, Kurt Warner, MVP, and all the rest. So they barely won. Now, I'm not from here, so you've got to help me a second. Have the Bears, have they won a Super Bowl? <laughs> they have. They, yeah, they have. Okay. What, what year was that? Five. Okay, now you're all engaged, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Well, it was the 85 Bears, but as I recall, the Super Bowl was actually in 86. Not to correct the Chicago people, but I think that's probably the case. And the reason I know that is somebody corrected me after last night's service. Anyway, so they, 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 who did they play? Okay, the Patriots, that's right. Oh, those, those dastardly Patriots. What was this, what was the score of that game? I can't remember exactly. 
I think I heard 46 to 10. Is that right? Something like that. Okay. 40 something to 10. Okay. Now the Rams Nike'd the Titans, the Bears hyper Nike'd the Patriots. Go ahead. That's just, I want you to see this. They didn't just win, they crushed them. Here's what Romans 8 is saying. In all these things, we hyper-Nike everything. Everything. Even the hardest... Even the most painful, even the most seemingly insurmountable, we hyper-Nike them. We conquer. How? Through him who loved us. Now this is similar to the Bears fans who talk about the year that they won the Super Bowl, meaning the fans won the Super Bowl. And some of you would be, oh yeah, we won that year. Listen to me very carefully. You contributed nothing to the victory of the Bears over the Patriots. Your contribution was like the chips and salsa that you were eating as you watched the game. Nothing. You didn't play. You didn't do anything. It was the actions of others that gave you the victory. And that is what this passage is saying. Before we get all full of ourselves, like, yeah, we're the, we're the super Nike. Wait a second. How do we win? Through him who agaped us. It is Christ who has gained the victory for us. And it is by his love, inseparable, That we conquer all the things that would apparently, possibly, take us from the one thing that saves, which is the love of Christ. So our victory comes from someone else. Who? Him. Who's him? Christ has gained it for us. And friends, this is what we're celebrating. This all about him weekend, we are celebrating Christ's love never ends. Think of that. It never, never ends. It never gets tired. It never fails. It never falls down. It is never overwhelmed by some other force. So that as long as we have His love, we have Him. And as long as we have Him, we have the victory. And since we cannot be separated from His love, we will always have Him. And since we always have Him, we always super Nike. More than conquerors through Him who loved us. Unconditional love is great. But the question we can still have is, is it enough? Is it enough? Is there anything out there that is stronger than Christ's love? Which is this second list that he addresses beginning in verse 38. For I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Crescendo ending right there. What is it getting at? Can blank keep Christ from loving me? And he begins with the big one. Death. Can death keep Christ from loving me? The ultimate apparent uh, separation. Does Christ's love extend even past the grave? Life, he says, which is filled, as we know, with so many uncertainties and dangers that we don't know what's coming. What about life? Angels and rulers, this spiritual world, which we know a little bit about because the Bible tells us, but is so mysterious to us, where there are principalities and powers and beings, Satan and all the rest, are any of them maybe strong enough or have some little way of of keeping us from experiencing eternally the love of Christ? Things present or future, is there anything in time Or in the future that can pull his love from me. Powers. Is there any authority on earth that is strong enough to keep me from experiencing the love of Christ? Height and depth. This is a spatial question. Is is the highest star too far away for Christ's love to extend there? And is the deepest ocean too deep for him to love me there? Is there anywhere that I can go and be a part from his love. And what we see Paul doing here is basically in one long sentence, he, he, he goes to all the human extremes that we could even imagine and answers the question, life and death, the spiritual world of angels and demons, the unknowns of time, the far reaches of space, political power, judicial power, kings, queens, rulers, presidents, Is there anything or anyone that is too much for his love to overcome? Pastor Steve, yes. Does that include my blank? It includes your blank. You mean any blank that I can come up with? What blank could you come up with that isn't included in the words, anything in all creation? Oh, I don't know. But Paul and Scripture, they seem so confident. There are a lot of unknown blanks out there, after all. Listen, my dear friend, Jesus is the Son of God. And unless your blank is more powerful than his infinite power and more uh, smarter than his infinite wisdom, and longer lasting than his eternality, then there is no way for your blank to stand up to Christ. Can't happen. And oh, by the way, he's got backup. God the Father is equally strong as Christ, and the Holy Spirit as well. So unless your blank can take on the Son of God, infinite in power, God the Father, infinite in power, God the Spirit, infinite in power, your blank doesn't have a chance. This is the love of Christ. Nothing, it says, in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I just want you to let that sit on your heart for a moment. Nothing 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that will happen to you, can happen to you, will happen to you, that will keep Christ from loving you. Can you believe it? It is, it's, it is truly out of this world, love. And we see from this that the love of God is more than a feeling. It is more than an idea. It is more than a ritual. It is more than a religion. The love of God is a person. And his name is Jesus. And he displayed that love by dying on the cross while we were sinners. In the nastiness of our own sin, he loved us anyway. And now nothing can keep him from loving his people. Nothing. Nobody, nowhere, no thing, nothing can pluck us out of his hand. He's God. We win more than conquerors. Now here's what I want to ask you this morning. Christian, how confident are you in the inseparable, invincible, ain't nobody can mess with it, love of Christ for you. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I would have another thing to say to you, which I will say briefly, (laughs) and that is that the us in this passage are those that are followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus, those who have received the salvation offered by his work for us. And the question for you is not so much, you know, will Christ love me forever? But the question is, is Christ my Savior and Lord? And he can become that for you by faith if you will believe. Not clean up your apartment for him, but simply receive the offer that all who believe in him will be saved. And you can believe this morning and be saved. This message, though, is more for believers, Christians, How confident are you in the love of Christ? Paul says here, I am sure. It can be translated, I am persuaded. I am, I am uh, convinced. Are we today? Oh, what a difference this makes. One example. Many centuries ago, a church hero by the name of Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor. This is at a time where being a Christian was not, uh, cool was not approved. And the emperor threatened him uh, and said that he would banish him if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me from this world, for this is my father's house. Then I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasures are in heaven. And my heart is there too. Then I will drive you from man and you will have no friend left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. That is a man who is convinced of the inseparable love of Christ. Now, you might be here today and say, well, that's great for the church heroes and the big luminaries and all the rest, but I don't really see myself standing before an emperor. I'm just sort of a normal Christian. What difference does a convince, being convinced of the sustaining love of Christ make for me? What difference does all about him love make in my life? 
Well, the reality of this was brought home uh, to me this week through the faith of a very unassuming Christian woman in our church who unexpectedly became a widow on Thursday. And many of you know, I assume if you know them, you know uh, Bob and Helen Brown. And this week, one of our dear, godly, wonderful saints here in our church, Bob Brown, uh, very unexpectedly um, died. And this was a shock to the family, and I encourage you to pray for them. The viewing is after our services today here in this building, services tomorrow. But if you knew Bob, you loved him. I mean, Bob was, Bob taught at Crown Point schools for 39 years. In fact, I wonder how many people here had Bob Brown as a teacher. Would you raise your hand? Okay, look around. And those that do are proud of it. Very, very fine Christian man. I think probably one of the best known men in the entire city of Crown Point. He taught for 39 years. You went to a football game, he was there. You went to a basketball game, he was there. He was, you know, helped drive the buses and get kids here and there. He loved the children of this community and was a very, very faithful Christian man. In fact, I said to somebody yesterday, if the gospel is true, Bob is in heaven. There's no other conclusion to come to because he believed in Christ with all of his heart. So I was talking with Helen on Thursday, and here you have a woman who, within 24 hours, has, has become a widow, and she said something to me that I will not soon forget. Here's what she said. She said, I'll tell you one thing, nobody at that funeral is going to say that Bob has passed away. Nobody. She kind of said it like that. He did not pass away. He is alive and well with Jesus. And she said it with that kind of a unique, powerful conviction. And I thought to myself, we are not going to say that. In fact, I read the the obituary for Bob yesterday, and it very clearly said that on Thursday, Bob went from earth to heaven. There is nothing in his obituary that says that he passed away. Think of that. Helen Brown, 54 years of marriage, within 24 hours of losing her husband. And what was she convinced of? That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate Bob or anyone who believes from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's all about him love and being convinced of it. And it is that love that we celebrate today in song and in sermon, the centrality of Christ in all things and the supremacy of his love for our eternal joy and his eternal glory and so Bethel for the 14th time I say to you that it is all about him